eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, this is Tony Hernandez, and you're listening to the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. Each week, we take a deep dive into our vast collection of IAP interviews in order to bring you the voices behind some of our more fascinating conversations. If you enjoy the stories we share and want to help us bring you more, please join with hundreds of other donors and make a tax-deductible contribution to the Immigrant Archive Project. Thanks to many of you, we've been able to collect thousands of immigrant testimonies, which are now being proudly archived at the U.S. Library of Congress. If you'd like to help us expand our work, please go to immigrantarchiveproject.org and click on the Donate button. That's immigrantarchiveproject.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you. I'm Tony Hernandez, and once again, you're listening to the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. Our guest this week is legendary race driver Tony Kanaan. Kanaan has always been a fan favorite. In fact, he won 17 IndyCar races in a career that started back in 1998. Kanaan won five races in 2004, earning him the highly coveted series championship. And in 2013, he won the most important race in the world, the Indy 500, at a then record speed of 187.433 miles an hour. In full disclosure, Kanan and I are actually very good friends. We met at a local gym years ago and we hit it off right away. In fact, most everyone who meets Kanan hits it off with the guy right away. He has this infectious, self-deprecating sense of humor and a very kind demeanor, which quite frankly, I found surprising, particularly for a guy that risks his life every time he suits up for a Sunday race. We recorded this conversation in his home Behind him at the time sat this huge wall display of pristine race helmets in a variety of colors and designs, yet none of them were his. Apparently, helmet swaps in IndyCar have the same general meaning of a jersey swap in soccer, which tends to happen much more frequently. But in IndyCar, this gesture is often a rarity. It means much greater admiration and respect for an opponent, as these helmets are far more expensive and hold much, much more value than a simple soccer jersey. One helmet in particular stood in stark contrast to all the others. It was filthy, and it originally belonged to Carlos Munoz, the Colombian driver who came in second behind Canaan at the 2013 Indy 500. You see all the soot and grime on this thing, Munoz said to Canaan when they swapped helmets. Well, all of that came off your car as I tried catching you from behind. It was a beautiful moment. And I understood right then and there that the dirt on that helmet represented the culmination of a lifelong dream. And to fully grasp the unlikely beauty and poetry of it all, one has to rewind the tape and start the story from the very beginning. Growing up uh, at home, it was, you know, uh, a typical Brazilian family. Uh, when I was five years old, we start, like dad started it to make me watch some races on TV. Formula One races. It used to be extremely popular down there. And uh, just every Sunday morning, 
we would wake up and and sit down and and watch racing it's, it's kind of like in america that people watch football uh, you know racing there apart from soccer it's the second biggest sport so by the time i was eight by watching you know growing up watching races i was kind of wanting to do it and i remember one day watching uh one race with dad and senna had won that race and i was all pumped and i said dad do you think can i have a go-kart one day uh, that day i got my go-kart so i think he was uh waiting for me uh to pop the question uh and and and, and that was his thing no that was his uh i think in a way like like every parent you're trying to first of all the biggest worry we all have is how you're going to guide your kid to avoid him going to the wrong way right first of all obviously you gotta emphasize how important it is to go to school get a, a right education but i think dad also had a vision of sports he loved sports he played soccer when in school for a long time but he loved racing racing was his passion i remember that having like cars and and like street cars they're always the hottest cars and and stuff like that that he probably found a way to first of all do a father and son thing over the weekend but also try to get me on the row of you have to dedicate if you want something you're going to have to dedicate yourself and you're going to have to stay away from drugs and parties and drinking and all that stuff so uh, i think that was his vision and but that first and foremost i think he started with just having something to do just the boys at home i have a young sister and my mom but he wanted to find something that just the two boys would do by themselves little man on man, a man on man yeah, yeah very cool very cool now you got the go you, you you got the cart the day that you asked for it yeah but i understand it was a, sort of a well-kept secret well we go to the store the go-kart you know factory or store as you call we, we get this go-kart and completely unprepared i mean dad had like uh you know a, a normal car where the go-kart doesn't fit and we don't have we didn't have a truck so we put on the top of on the on the on, on the top of his car tied up and then when we we're about to go home there was two problems that we found one was we couldn't tell my mom that and second of all the actually the car with the go-kart on the top would not fit into the garage so dad says well let's find a race shop around here so we can leave the go-kart so we asked the guy in the go-kart factory if he knew a mechanic that could actually keep the cart there so we could come over the weekends and and just drive so we go and we drop the cart off uh, you know on this race shop like a couple miles away from the racetrack and we went back home pretending that nothing had happened the following weekend uh, we wake up saturday morning that says hey i'm gonna go for uh for a little ride with with tony it's a boys thing and mom didn't make a big deal yeah sure whatever so we're gone all day come back and doing that six seven eight weekends in a row mom started to get extremely suspicious but in a different way he she didn't think he was doing something wrong with me i was like probably his alibi mom you know typical brazilian extremely jealous and mad thought dad was uh you know fooling around and taking the kid as an alibi so we had to tell her which we talked i think uh when you have th some bad news to tell if you say something worst 
when you tell the truth, it doesn't sound that awful. So uh, mom definitely was not happy to see uh, her eight-year-old racing go-kart. Compared to the husband cheating, that was certainly that was wasn't that far bad. Far away better. <laughs> so she was okay with it. Turned out to be a brilliant way to break the news. <laughs> <laughs> that was smart. I think that's, that's, he had all that plan. He never told me that, but you it know. It was part of the plan. I'm kind of going to use plan. that at home every, every once in a while, maybe. <laughs> And, and, and you were telling me that you sort of took to to it like a, very naturally, you know, like a fish. Yeah, I mean, I started it, um, and of course, the first few months, uh, it was just like it was school. As a little kid, you're like, hey, you know, you go to school, and you tell your friends that you drive go karts. Like, what what boy doesn't like to tell about cars, right? And these kids are like, yeah, I play soccer, and I'm like, nah, I drive cars, you know, and and it was just cool. So I felt that I was the coolest kid in school. Um, then it become something that I, I realized that I really wanted it to do for a living. Like, you know, it's, it's amazing. And I feel extremely lucky that at nine years old, you can decide that. But obviously, you know, I'm seeing people that, you know, when you're nine years old, you want to be a cop, you want to be a firefighter, you want, and then you grew up and you become a lawyer, you know, so, but at the time I was certain that that's what I wanted it to do. And, and, and that sought my determination. You know, I, I remember, you know, first of all, you started to win. So that talent, you can't buy talent. You can learn everything else. So I guess I was gifted for some reason that I had a pretty good talent for that. And, and, and dad saw that and kind of like, you know, motivate me and then, but then put me on a schedule. I remember days that I've never, I'm, as a kid, I don't remember doing anything else apart from going to school and straight to go, go to the go-kart track. Having to, um, I can't call it diet because you don't, kids don't diet, but having a, a healthy way of living, eating healthy foods because you can't gain weight. You have to, you know, I couldn't really go to the gym at 10 years old, but I had it to be a little stronger for the go-karts. So the best way was to drive the go-karts. You have to go to bed early. And there was no parties for me. It was no, so I, I, I had to give up a lot of things. And that was the deal that he made with me. He says, that's what you want to do? Do you see those guys on TV? They all sacrifice a lot. If you wanted to be a top athlete, that doesn't come easy. So I started at sacrificing, you know, as far as I remember, I was 10 years old. Did there ever come a point where you sort of questioned, is this too much sacrifice? I know normally teenagers, they hit a certain age. Yeah, you know? well, luckily or not, um, dad, you know, from 9 to 13, dad was my sponsor, my dad, my, my, the guy that was with me in the entire time. And, and, and unfortunately, he got diagnosed with, with cancer when I was actually 11 years old. Um, between 9 and 11, we didn't know what was wrong, but the real diagnosis was, uh, you know, when I was 11. And he lasted a couple more years, and unfortunately, he passed away when I was 13. And, and, you know, during the years that he was ill, he actually started to kind of, without me realizing, but preparing me for life. So we had nice talks as, as father and, and son, you know, he always says, look, if, you know, you always got to take care of your mom and sister. You know, look what you do. You're racing and, and you're really good at it. And so I never made a big deal about it until a Thursday. We, have, we used to race on the weekends. 
And a Thursday afternoon, I come back from school and mom says, hey, uh, dad wants to see you. He was, he was at the hospital, which was extremely uh, normal. I mean, hospital became my second home. I remember first time I walked into a hospital, I felt like, you know, it smelled like hospital, looked like hospital. After two years, it was just, wasn't a big deal. So I go up and, and I sit on his side of the bed and then we start talking and he's like, hey, how's, how's school? How's your day? You have a race this weekend, concentrate. Like he was always trying to tell me stuff that, you know, don't do silly things, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, look, do you realize if something ever happens to me, um, you're going to have a big responsibility, right? I'm like, yeah, I know that. You told me that a million times, you know, like a little kid. Yeah, dad, all right, all right. And he says, look, but I'm serious. I think there are two things that I want you to do for me if something happens to me. I said, sure. So take care of your mom and sister and never stop racing because I think you're really good at it. Would you promise me that? I said, sure. So I went home and, and went to bed. Next morning, I woke up getting ready to go to school and uh, mom is at home. And it was really weird because mom used to stay with dad in the hospital. I'm, I'm, I'm like, what's going on? And she, uh, she sat me down and said, look, your father passed last night. And I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, I, I talked to the guy like we're talking it right now. It wasn't like, you know, you have this impression that, you know, you go into a coma or like, no, he was just. I think he was, I don't know, he was ready to go or he knew something that I didn't. And I said, all right, so is everything set for the funeral and the services? And she says, yeah, your uncles and myself were, you know, we're taking care of everything. And I said, all right, well, I am going to go to school. I'm going to go to the go-kart track after that because that's a promise that I made him. Are you okay with that? She's like, sure. And, you know, keep in mind that us Latinos, our funeral and services don't last a week like here. It's a day you do, you invite everybody the next day, you know, you bury the person. So I remember going to the go-kart track and, and that weekend I started on the pole and I slept in actually my mechanic's house that weekend because I couldn't go back home, um, you know, with all the action going on and the stuff that we had. And I won the race on Sunday. So... Um, that trophy actually still sits in my mom's house on my dad's bedside until this day. So um, back to, to what you were saying, you know, it was... Uh, no, I think I was lucky enough that with that promise, I couldn't... Uh, I had to keep it. So that's why I'm still here. There's no going back? No, I had no choice. I sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, your connection to racing Re sort of keeps you connected to the memory of your father today, no? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you think about it, I mean, your childhood, I mean, I was 13 while I lost him, but up until you were, I think, five, six years old, you don't remember much of your parents or anything. You're just a kid, right? So I really connected to my dad from seven to 13, especially because all he did was go race with me and watching races with me and so yeah uh you know i i don't know how different i get that question asked the entire uh, all the time my entire career was what about if he was alive you know well so many things could have been different i don't know but yeah it, it keeps me connected it keeps me keeps his memory alive you know and every every success um 
every race that I win, I didn't realize that until somebody pointed out, but I've, I've never actually, you know, when you win a race or when you win something, people actually celebrate with your fist up. I'm always pointing up. And that, and I didn't realize that, really. Somebody the other day, I was like, that's true. Like every time I would just go. So, and that's like, I'm doing it, keeping in my promise. So, yeah, we, that's probably the best way that, that I could describe that, how connected I am to my dad. Oh, beautiful. Now, as the father <clears throat> of two sons, what lessons did you take from, from your father that you're looking forward to passing on to them, would you say? Well, I think this lesson number one is to spend time with them because life is too short. You know, I think dad was 40 years old when he died, which is actually my age right now. And I can't imagine leaving my kids right now. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's almost exactly the same age, my oldest son, well, four years apart. But so the lesson number one is to enjoy your kids. You know, it's easy to, especially with what I do. Um, it's a very selfish sport. It takes a lot of time and takes a lot of myself not just people just think you just go race on the weekend and you come home but you have workouts to do you have interviews you have so many other things that involved for you to be a hundred percent committed to do that a part of let alone that every time you jump in the race car you don't know what's going to happen to you so you have to be extremely strong in the head so lesson number one to enjoy them as much as i can Lesson number two, I would say, try to keep them in a path, whatever that is. I don't know if I want my kids to race, but that's a very selfish decision of mine. Um, of course, if they decide to do that, I'm going to have to support them. But, you know, trying to have them focus on the good things. And, you know, and especially nowadays, because we come from a generation that you know, a lot of the temptations weren't there. Today, you don't have to leave the house to communicate with the entire world or to get in trouble. So that's my biggest uh, challenge that I have is how am I going to keep my kids kind of an old school, the way we grew up, you know, valuing the family, valuing to stay. Because nowadays you see kids, they just, they can't wait to leave their parents home. And, you know, we don't do that. I mean, we're, well, it's Latinos, it's like, we live in our house. We only leave the house when we get married. <laughs> so that, that's that's definitely what I what I envision: having my kids close to me, and 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 focus on on having a goal, whatever that is. I I don't mind, you know, whatever profession they want to be. If they don't want to be any anywhere near or involved in sports, I wouldn't mind as long as they're happy ebay motors is here for the ride elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own led headlights spoilers whatever you need ebay motors has it at affordable prices and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Let's get into your immigrant experience a little bit. Um, when did it become apparent that you you were leaving Brazil and coming to live in the U.S.? Um, actually, I'm going to go back. Before I came to the U.S., I went to Europe. 
to race in Italy. And that was probably one of the hardest uh, or the biggest uh, shock I've ever had as far as uh, feeling like you don't belong. I remember uh, landing there in 1993. I lived in a race shop for three years. I didn't have money to, uh, to I couldn't afford to rent a house. So the team that I was racing um, offered me to like, I could just stay there. So I remember I used to, my room was my uh, boss's office. Uh, after 6 p.m. was my bedroom and then 7 a.m. I had to get out. I had a bed, a mattress on the floor with a TV. And so I start winning a lot of races and it was in 1994 I entered a championship that if the win, if, if you win the championship, if you had to win the championship, you had $100,000 in prize money and you could, you could move up a, a ladder in the, in a, to a bigger series, which was a Formula 3, which is a nice car and really close to go do Formula 1. And I start the second race of the year. I won the first race. I won the second race. I was the only immigrant in the series. It was 23 drivers. It was 22 Italians and myself. I remember I was 17, 17 years old. And during, at the end of the second race, they approached me and they said, look, uh, we have a big problem. They want to ban you from racing here. I said, what did I do? Why? He says, well, all the dads made a movement and collect signatures saying that it's not fair that a Brazilian guy it's coming here and stealing the money from the future Italians. So of course it didn't go very well with me, but it didn't happen. I won 11 out of the 15 races and I took their money. Anyway, <laughs> the bloody Brazilian took their money and left. Success is the best revenge, isn't it? Yes, I mean, and you know, and I think back back then, I already realized that when 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 you're successful, you're gonna bother people. You know, unfortunately, there are people that are happy for you, and there are people that are extremely jealous. So, and you can't make everybody happy. No, and you know, I tried, I tried uh, to worry about that a lot, and nowadays. I think with age, you just stop caring that much. You just, Absolutely. the people that you care, that, that, that you know that cares for you, that's, that's the people that you care to make them happy. So with that, I came to America. Not to get ahead of the story, but the way you've been received by race fans in the US. And that was incredible. It's completely different. I mean, and that's what I'm saying. You can imagine a 17 year old facing that. And then all of a sudden I get an opportunity to come to America. Which, by the way, I spoke zero English. I came here, I landed in 1995 in Phoenix, Arizona, and I had a piece of paper that I, I had asked a Brazilian friend of mine to write it down a couple translations for me, like where I'm, like where I'm at, I'm hungry, where's the restroom, those key things that you're going to need to survive. And, and of course, with, you know, a little bit of a scar from the previous experience i'm like you know they say this is the land of freedom and this but i want to see if these people and then from day one never felt that way and and fell in love with the place and you know 20 years later i'm still here and and i married an american girl my one of my kids is actually born here in america and and it's amazing because even let's be honest, us the Latinos, when when 
I know because I go to Brazil and if you say an American guy is going to be extremely successful in Brazil and we're going to have Brazilians cheering for him, that's almost impossible. Almost impossible. We, we are very territorial and, and if you're not Brazilian, it doesn't matter. You, we're not going to support you. Maybe if you're playing on a soccer team that you're doing something good for us, maybe we like you. But, you know, a race car driver with so much success and, and I, I actually am extremely thankful because one of my biggest fan base, it's here. Um, when I won the Indy 500 in 2013, I could not believe it. I had 400,000 people screaming my name. Um, it's very rewarding. You know, it makes you feel... Now I know why everybody loves America. <laughs> Especially when you're embraced that way and you're an outsider. Because one thing is to have 400,000 of, you know, Brazilians or yeah, that's case, easy, Cubans. Right? Yeah, you get that. But when you're the out-of-town guy, when you're the guy coming from a different country, when you're the one that arrived here without the language, and you're carrying that baggage from Italy, and suddenly you find 400,000 Americans cheering your name, that has to just be magical. No, it was, it was a magical moment in many ways. But I think over the years, of course, people knew my story. Uh, the one that I'm telling you right now. So I, I've, I think I, we reach out to everybody's home thinking how hard I fought to be here. It wasn't like I'm just going to go to America and try to steal somebody's job, you know. And, and I think competition, it's, it's healthy in, in any way of life. It, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you're from. If you're better than the person, so be it. So basically, which I, I, that's what I've tried to, to make people understand back then in Italy. It's like, listen, if they're better than me, they're going to beat me. Why you guys want to take me out, like out of the championship like that? It's just, if you think your son is better, just put it there and let the best win. And then I think here in America, that mentality is, it's a lot clearer. It's like, He's one of the best in what he does. Okay, he's not American, but so what? I mean, he still brings excitement. He still has a nice story to tell that we can even tell our kids, look, the possibilities are out there. It doesn't matter where, where you go, which, you know, in a way, I think in America, we, we, we're coming, thankfully for, you know, foreigners like us, that we open the vision of the Americans to look out. Because I remember, you know, first back 20 years ago, when you watch the news, we only talk about America. We never talked about what happened in Europe or in Brazil. And in Brazil or, you know, anywhere else you look on the eight o'clock news, we talk about what's going on in the entire world. And I think that made people be a little bit more open-minded. Absolutely. Looking back on your first days here, what would you say surprised you about life in America? What did you not expect that kind of caught you by surprise? I think, honestly, it was like just everything. It was, I was surprised how well organized the country was. How, okay, bear, bear with me how polite people were, but it's like, I know everywhere here and there we don't have polite people, but it's far better than what I was coming from. And, and, and the opportunities, it, it's always like, if the opportunity is there, it's there for everybody. And, and if you're good enough to take it, then 
So to me, it was just everything works, right? I mean, I know a lot of people are going to probably go against that. What I'm saying right now, because, but you know, every country has their issues. And I look back at my country today, we're struggling big time. So out of the, all the struggles, I think America, it's a lot better off. Our economy, it's a lot stronger. It's just, you know, it's coming back up. So I remember it was just like, really like a big shock saying like, oh, that's how it's supposed to work. Um, this is, this is how it, like when you pay your taxes and nobody steals from it, you don't realize that they're taking millions and nothing, nothing works. And so it's like, now you understand why people are not as corrupt as other countries like Brazil and Colombia, Venezuela, because you pay, but then you get it back. You receive it back. There, you just pay and somebody takes it. Take me back to your Indy 500 win. Was that, if I'm not mistaken, that was your 12th? 12th, right. Indy 500? It took, you know, it's once a year, so it took me 12 years. 12 years. Yeah, it was, it was a long journey. I think, you know, back, that goes back to my childhood. I remember watching that race with my dad as well. You know, every last weekend of May, Memorial Day weekend, we watched the Indy 500 and the winner like always won a million dollars. So you take a picture with your race car in a pile of money. I was like, whoa, that's cool. You know, although it's cool to be a race car driver, but I'm going to actually, my nose is not going to be that big when I have that amount of money anymore. Um, so it was something that I always wanted it to do. You know, the winner of that race becomes a legend. His name goes to a museum with only probably a hundred other people that have done that. And names that are extremely big in my sport. Your face goes in a trophy. I mean, it's, it's like, anyway. So I come to America and then I, the, my first year there, although I had me here since 96, my first opportunity to do that race was 2002. And from 2002, in my first eight tries, I've led every one of them. I've led a total of 220 laps over the course of 12 years, and the race is only 200 laps. So I'm, I had led the entire race, not the right lap, but, and I never had won it. And then it became something that from the fans, I always got asked that question. It says, oh, that track is so bad for you, man. And I, I, I mean, I was extremely talented. It was something that the track suits my style. The track, it's what? Like, it's something about me in that track. And I finished second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth, eleventh, twelfth, and like a couple of DNFs. So I had finished in every position possible apart from, from winning. And, and that year, you know, as you become older, your chances are less and less and less. You know, people kept asking me, how many more years you have? You know, how, are you okay with the fact that you might never win that race? And, you know, I won the championship in 04. That was the race that it was missing. And I'm, I'm was, I was totally okay with it. I, I never felt that the track owed me something. I always felt that, you know, even with... The 400,000 people, every time I went there for those 12 years, they support me. They wanted it to win. I've never knew if it was that because they felt sorry for me because I hadn't had one or it's just because they appreciate the appreciation that I had to the racetrack. 
And I always took it every year as a, that was my chance. That was my chance. And, and so in May 2013, uh, with against all the odds, um, I've raced for big teams back in the days and with big budgets and all these opportunities to win million dollar budgets. And, and, and we, we filled a car with a very little team that never had ever had won a race with uh, a $4 million budget against a $12 million budget from other teams. And uh, we beat everybody. So I think I, I used to say that the win came at the right time. I think, you know, in life, when you work hard, I'm, I'm sure you will succeed. I'm not trying to say you can achieve all your dreams because, but that day, that victory for me, it was the sweetest, not just because I had won the Indy 500, but then going back to my childhood with my dad and then going back and thinking, what about if I had won that on my first try? Would I value that that much? Then what about if I had won in a big team? Was I going to have the same value it has to me right now? What about if I had won five years ago when my son wasn't even born? That he couldn't see me win because he was going to be no he was born but he was going to be two now he was five years old i had promised him the trophy on a conversation that i can tell the story in a little bit so all those i think i used to tell people it didn't take me 12 years to win somebody planned that that was going to be the year because of so many other things because a win is it's a win you know, you can look the trophies right behind me. That's a piece of metal that it might be forgotten one day. It's just, you know, it's nice. I look at it every day. I feel proud of myself. But at the end of the day, that's just a trophy. The memories are the ones that, you know, having my kid there, having my kid having a little trophy like this. I made a replica for him at home and he can tell his friends, you know, my dad won the Indy 500, like bragging about and, and all the memories that, so if it if I have to wait another twelve years for something that good to happen, I think is well worth it. God made you wait for a reason, didn't he? I I I believe so. But you know, with Leo was we won go karting in Homestead because he wanted it to try. That was the only time that he tried, and thank God he didn't like it. But so we uh, we get there, and then I'm teaching him and go in front of him, and so he goes. Let's race. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Okay. So we do like a three-lap race, and I let him win. He wins the first race. So Leo, let's do another one. Come on. Like, it's all right. So I go, I, and I beat him on, pur on purpose. So we stop. He's like, no, I want one more. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Uh-oh. So we do one more. I let him win. He gets out of the go-kart. Oh, I'm so tired. that I, I, I want to go home. I'm like... He didn't, he didn't want me to like... He didn't want, he didn't want you to no. die. I'm like, all right. So I put him in the car and we're driving from home instead back here. And he's in the back seat and I'm like, and I'm thinking, I need to talk to this kid about being ex accepting to lose because, you know, he hates it. hates it until today, like anything. Everything that I play with him since that day, now I win. No, now I win on purpose. And I let him be so pissed. So... I'm like, I'm talking to him and say, hey, Leo, do you know that sometimes when you lose a race or you lose a game 
um, or a competition in any sort, it's, it's actually good for you. It's like, well, why it's good? Losing is not good. I said, no, it's good because it makes you stronger, makes you wanted to try harder. So next time you learn, you think about what you need to do or whatever that competition is. If it's in school, you're going to study more for a test. If you get like an... Yeah, just channel that energy of your disappointment into something positive. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, he says, because you understand a lot about losing, don't you? I'm like, what do you mean? He says, well, he was six, five at the time. He says, well, I'm five. And, and since I've been born, I only hear stories that he won races, but I really haven't seen him winning a lot. Tone, I swear to God, I, I wanted to stop the car in the middle of 95 and said, get the fuck out of here. Walk home. And find your way home. <laughs> I mean, you're home in Brazil, not here. <laughs> so, Did you really say that? Yeah. So I'm like, oh. you know what? You're right. You're right. That was February of 13. And I said, do you know the Indy 500? I said, oh, of course I know. I said, well, then I'm going to win that race. And I'm going to give you the trophy and you're going to put it in your nightstand. So every time you wake up in the morning, you're going to look at it and you're going to see that I won and you have it. <laughs> and then I won the race and I had to give him the trophy. No, that's beautiful. So he, we went to Detroit to get, and then everybody heard the story. So Borg Warner, when I win the race, I'm like, I can't give him my trophy. I mean, he lives in Brazil. He doesn't live here. If he lived here, fine. I buy a replica because I'm not giving him my trophy. Yeah. They're like, nah, we'll do something special for him. So, so the, the Borg Warner, the big one, you've seen the big one, yeah, right? Yeah. The big one, nobody has. It stays in the museum. They had everybody, has the, all the 100 faces that won. It's that's, huge. That's one trophy. It's five, six. It's wow. worth three and a half million dollars. Like the Stanley Cup. Yes. Right? Yeah. But then they give you the miniature of course, of course, yeah. with your face Personal. on it and that's yours. And then they made the only one in the world and they're never going to make it again. They made a baby, baby, because this is the baby Borg, they call. Right. Then they made a baby, baby Borg. Which, which is like, just like that, but a little bit smaller. This smaller and has, and has my face and, ha and says, made it to Leonardo Canon with, by his dad's achievement in the Indianapolis 500. So he has it. And usually the winner goes to the Detroit Auto Show. Together with your, yeah. So he got invited and he, he actually had to go up there and then get his trophy wow. presented to him wow. and everything. That was awesome. Wow. He's never talked shit to you again, right? <laughs> well, he needs to win the Indy 500 if he wants to talk shit to me right now. That's it. That's it. So win the Indy 500 I, I or even. Win it twice, then you yeah. can talk a little shit. You got to win it twice. Yeah, because if you win once, you match one. We're tied. <laughs> So, <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. And how nice of them to go and 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 make a it little replica. It was a replica. nice story, though. Oh, beautiful. And I story. think they they obviously capitalized on it as well. It was out. It was everywhere. I'm sure. It, it was it was everywhere. Wow, Kelinda, what a what a special moment. What a special moment. Well, now uh, hopefully his brother won't find out. He's gonna ask me for one too. <laughs> well, he'll probably wind up thinking yeah, that one. So you have that one. <laughs> eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com.
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The power of visualization. Um, something tells me you probably pictured yourself winning that Indy 500 as a little kid. Uh, every, every, everyone that's very successful that I've spoken to has really used visualization to their advantage. Yeah, I mean, of course, as a kid, my, my visualization changed as I grow up. As a kid, uh, you know, you're very innocent. All you think about is, how am I going to celebrate when I win? Am I going to get out of the car? I'm going to kiss this hot chick. And, you know, I don't know, I'll do a dance. I'll do something, interviews. And then you grow up, you're like, well, how cool is it going to be to win this thing? But to tell you, like, to be honest, I think growing up, I had uh, the picture, the trophy right behind me. Many occasions and then many houses that I lived stuck in, in my fridge, stuck in my bicycle that I work out every day. So when I was struggling on the bike, and having a bad day working out, I would just look at that and say, okay, that's, that's what I'm here for. And, and all the struggles that I had through my career, because, you know, I had bad days, a lot, a lot more bad days than good days. And, and then you just, you focus on the goal. You focus on what you're here for, what are you doing that for? And always with, with the mentality that that was, you know, the easiest thing to do, it's to give up. Anybody can do that. Me, you, anybody. And so I said, I don't want to be part of anybody. I want to be somebody and I'm going to make it. And obviously, over the years, I got the opportunity to be part of the Indy 500. And then I realized I was really good at it. Then it's like, I'm so close. So... The all you know from nine years old to 25 when I start doing the Indy 500 it was like all these things that I visualize if I had won the race I could do all of them I could celebrate actually when you win the 500 you celebrate any way you want it because you're the winner after that you can do whatever you want because you're the winner so it became like okay so of course, it comes to the day that you win and you're so thrilled that 80% of the things that you visualize when you're a kid, you forgot what to do. So you want to like, can I rewind that and drink that milk in a different way? Uh, can I? So, you know, it's just, it's it's like that. It's a fleeting moment. It, it is. It is. And, and, and I think it's better as well because actually at one point, I would say by my fourth or fifth try of not winning, I actually got mad and I stopped visualizing as well because I thought that was probably a bad mojo or something. And I said, you know what? The day that it comes, I'll figure out. But don't mistake me, I didn't give up on it. I stopped dreaming about how it was going to be after the fact. After I won. He says, let's concentrate on winning. And then we'll... I think the rest will sort it out by itself. And sure enough, I mean, if you look, <laughs> you know, the pictures, I pour milk over my head, which is like gross. Um, you know, I, then I had to stick with it for four hours doing interviews with milk in my ears, like smelling like bitter. And, 
you know, I didn't celebrate as much as, as I thought I was going to because you're like in shock. So, but it was all worth it. But yeah, I mean, I, th I think honestly, there is people ask me, what's the secret, you know, for your success? What's, what drives you? I, I don't think there is a secret. You know, I, I remember talking to a couple of my mentors through life. I said, you know, what is it? How, how, how are you so successful? And one of the guys just said, you know what? The more that I work, the more successful I am. So nothing comes easy. And, and, and for sure, um, you know, for me, it's, it's, there is no secret. It was a lot, I had a huge plan. I had planned my entire career when I was 10 years old. Nothing went according to the plan. It was completely different, but at the end, I still achieve the same goal. Absolutely. Well, it's like they say, life is what happens while you're planning for something else, no? Exactly. Very true. Going back to your point about, you know, it's, 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 it's not easy and the work that goes into it. I'd like for you to talk to me a little bit about your, your training, because I know you take your training very seriously. It's part of your commitment. I think, you know, what, for what I do, it requires me to work out. Some people don't realize how tough, how hard it is to drive a race car. But also, a lot of people ask me, I'm, I'm about to be the first guy to achieve the 300 consecutive Grand Prix races. Um, I'm 40 years old. Nowadays, people write you off when you're 38, 39. They say you're done because, you know, to be on the top level for so long, you see any athlete, our, our lives are short as far as being on the top. And to be able to be on the top... You have to take care of yourself. And the only way I'm going to beat the 20-year-old kids that don't have to work out because I've been there, they work out twice a week. They wake up brand new. We work out five times a week and we're in pain. So it's with experience. And I also need to keep myself in shape. I'm not 20 anymore. They are, there are kids that are stronger than me for sure. They're a different breed, right? Different generations. They're already born stronger. It's just the way it is. I remember when I joined the series, I was beating the old guys, the Mario Andretti, the Michael Andretti, the Bobby Rahal, those guys that they're from the generation before mine. So I'm now, I'm up to that. So it's, it keeps me sharp. It keeps me, you know, I have a, a system that I do it every morning. You see me in the gym. Um, it's, it's like, you know, people wake up to go to the office. The gym is, is my office. Uh, I won't start my day until I'm done at the gym. Got to get that workout. It's part of keeping myself also in my mind. It's not just it's not just workout because it's healthy and it's because I need to keep myself in shape for the race car, but also keeps my mind focused on the goal still. And and I believe that there are plenty of signs people rarely you know regularly ask me the same question when when are you going to stop and i think the day that i woke up that i wake up in the morning and i don't feel like working out anymore the day that i wake up and i feel like maybe i shouldn't get in that race car today because i don't i'm a little afraid i'm thinking about my family i think that's those would be the signs so if you don't see me in the gym Either I'm sick or I'm, uh, I'm retiring. <laughs> <laughs>
No, I don't see you in the gym is because you're traveling. <laughs> yeah, exactly, traveling. exactly. You know, it's funny when, when we first sort of got to know each other, <clears throat> you used to kiddingly come over to me and say, you're my hero. You're my so hero. I and I had no idea what, what, what you meant. So one day I asked you, and I remember you said, you know, I do this because I have to. You know, I'm not sure that once I'm, you know, 50 or over 50 like you, if I'm going to go into the gym on a regular basis, you know, I, I, I get the sense you'll die of an old man being in the gym on a regular yeah, basis. Well, That'll never stop. Obviously, I was joking yeah. with you, but, but it is because nowadays I go to the gym because I have to go to the gym. I, I have to. And... I don't know. Like I said, I'm trying to predict the, the future. But when you say, what about if I say, Tony, right now, today, you don't have to go to the gym anymore. I think that I will still go to the gym. Because now, because it's an obligation, you feel like, you know, when your parents say, you got to go to school. Like, <sighs> now that you don't go to school anymore, say, so, oh, I miss the days that I used to go to school. So, yeah, I mean, you know, being working out for life. my entire life, I, I don't think I'll be able to stop. Actually, the days that... You know, with travel, sometimes I spend two or three days without working out. And my body actually aches a lot more than actually if I don't do anything. Probably I won't do in the intensity that that I do now, but I don't see me not yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And what you do right now, how does it differ the off-season from when you're, when you're racing? Well, so in the off-season, that's when you load up. Basically, I can train seven days a week, six days a week, take one day off. And, and that's when you lift the heaviest, you, you do the longest cardio. And during the season, it's first of all, it's hard to train because I only have Monday through Wednesday. Other than that, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, you end the racetrack. So you just trying to you try to peak in the off season, then maintain during the season and that's 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 what i do so pretty much right now it's the peak of it's the last week actually this week is the last week of my heavy heavy train because then i will start driving the car and and traveling and still only working out three times a week uh, it's gotta be tough to maintain during the season you don't that's why you peak then you will lose, but the amount that you lose, it's enough. Maintain so, is losing as little as possible. Exactly, That's maintaining. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you, do, you overdo in the off-season. So it's almost like the glass is actually full and it's actually... It's overflowing. Overflowing. Yeah. And then you get to a level when you lose, then you maintain. Because the good thing is also there is no better workout to drive a car than actually drive the car. And we don't do that in the off season. So it kind of balances out. Maybe my running and my lifting are not as strong during the season, but that, that doesn't matter because all I need is the, the stamina and the, and, and the endurance to drive the race car. That's all you're really looking for. Yeah. 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 Maybe when I get older, I'll try to shape up a bit more for myself. But <laughs> you, know, you, were, you, you were talking earlier about extending sort of your your career mm -hmm. and you've seen how weightlifting and conditioning has done that for you know countless baseball players and football players who you know when 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 i was a kid certainly when you were a kid you wouldn't see a no. you know a 40 year old boxer a 40 year old it will never uh, happen do you attribute that to in your case to the weights and the, I think, and the training i think training and, and eating right as well oh, yeah i think you know um nutrition it's People don't realize that, right? That it, it, we have a perfect example. We go to the gym here where we live 
and how many people we see in the gym as much as us and they still weigh the same and they're as big as because they don't eat right if people realize that eating right it's 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 gonna make you healthier it's gonna make you lose weight it's gonna make you feel better um and that's why i think it's a misconception uh here and 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 to me but yes i i think it's 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 a whole it comes together eating healthy working out and living healthy it's gonna make you go longer i mean it's there is no it's there's no magic it's it's just no and you see athletes that take care of themselves they have less injuries they have that's why they last longer they can play the entire time how many great great athletes had to retire on their primes because their knee or especially you know in football basketball and and us is the same thing because you know eventually no matter what i do my reflexes are gonna slow down and some of that stuff that I can't control, then I really, for what I do, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have to quit. But I'm not seeing that anytime soon. No. I'm not a quitter. Yeah. You know, people ask me when I'm gonna retire. I so I think somebody's gonna have to retire me. I'm not gonna make that call. <laughs> they that I don't, I can't find a job anymore. That'll be the day. Okay, somebody. I'm, I'm not going to say, hey, I don't see myself saying, Tony, this is my last year of racing. I decided that this is it. I'm going to go take care of my family. I'm going to spend more time with my kids. I'm not made like that. I think there is space for everybody. I think there is, you know, there's time for the kids. There's time for, for racing. So somebody will retire me eventually. Hopefully that'll be a long time from now. I hope so. A long Ten time more from years. now. But you know what? Since we're on that subject, looking back, I mean, you, you, you're not able, or you won't be able to write the history of your sport without mentioning your name. So understanding that and knowing that, how, how would you like to, to be remembered? You know, it's tough to talk about yourself, but I think the way... I live nowadays, um, you know, I, I live for my kids and, and I think I try to pass my experience to the young kids that to have hope, right? To, to see, look, a young kid, we had money, I lost my dad, we lost all the money. I had everything going wrong for me and I could have made it, my life could have made a turn and I could have become the biggest loser or trouble kid because I had the freedom I was 13, I was taking care of my mom. I was, you know, I didn't have to tell her where I was going, why I was going, like, it's just free, I was free. So I could have done anything. I could have tried any type of drugs. I could have done, honestly, it's, it's out there, right? So I lived through trying to show these kids that if you're committed to something, something, it's gonna, something good is gonna come out of it. It doesn't necessarily mean I try to tell my son all the time. It's not because you have a goal and that's what you're gonna you're going to achieve. But by concentrating and focusing on that, it might open up for so many other opportunities that you never know. So I wanted to be remembered as a guy that had nothing, came from nothing, conquered a lot. But I'm still the same person. I still have the same values, and 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 that's what you take. I mean, yeah, it's nice to show all the helmets back here. I could take it to 
to the office and show you the 200, 300 trophies that I have. But one day I'll be gone and those are just going to be there. Somebody might take care of them. Somebody just might leave them collecting dust. And, and the way I want it to be remembered is, uh, you know, to, to show everybody that you got to fight, man. It's, it's, life is a fight and, and you got to do it. There's no, you know, giving up. It's, it's, again, it's, it's so easy. I, I hate, I hate losers. I hate losing. And like I used to say, you know, second place is the first loser. <laughs> That's a great attitude and it served you well. It's yeah, I mean, well. you know, it's what I chose for myself. It's easy to say, but when, when I, you know, when I was young, my biggest conflict taking an advice from somebody, my question was, have you done it? Have you been through it? Then, I'll, then I would believe you. Just for you to say, you got to go to school because otherwise, well, have you done it? Yes. Well, then, okay. Well, then you know what you're talking about. So I think I proved what hard work does. And, and hopefully we have plenty of kids. It's the next generation of us um, doing the same thing. TK, as his friends and fans call him, has been working hard at a young man's sport for just about longer than anyone else. And as we just heard, he began racing go-karts in his native Brazil when he was just a kid, and he's never stopped. Thanks to careful nutrition and grueling, incessant training, he's managed to negotiate an extension on his youth. This year, at the age of 47, and after 20 years in IndyCar, TK raced in the Indy 500 once again. At the end of the day, the oldest man on the track managed to leave 30 cars behind him to earn a spot on the podium, proving that he still has what it takes to perform at the very highest level of his beloved sport and keep that childhood dream alive for just a little bit longer. If you enjoy our podcast, we invite you to visit us at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and a five-star rating. The Immigrant Archive Project is edited and co-produced by Edie Gonzalez. Our director of photography is Daniel Godoy. For more stories, please visit us online at immigrantarchiveproject.org. I'm Tony Hernandez. Thank you for listening.